This is Whole Backstage Live, and you're listening to our 13 Days of Halloween. Taken from Catherine Tucker Wyndham's 13 Alabama Ghosts and Jeffrey. This first compilation of Alabama ghost stories brings you famous ghosts and locations from throughout the mid to late 1800s. Shadows of the unrest which plagued the South during the Civil War. You can still visit some of these locations even to this day. Others have long since been reclaimed by the earth and trees and creeping vines. Thirteen individual readers will share with you these stories of love lost, unbearable tragedy, unsettled ghostly apparitions, and untimely death. Look for a new episode daily until October 31st. Misdealings and a failed prison escape lead to the death of a disgraced businessman in The Return of the Ruined Banker. One afternoon not long ago, a guide was showing a group of tourists through Selma's Sturdivant Hall. The visitors had been given a brief history of the mansion from the time of its construction in 1852. And after admiring graceful proportions of the downstairs parlors, they were guided to an upstairs bedroom. It was here in the quiet of this corner room that the guide, while describing the rope-laced trundle bed and other old furnishings, suddenly stopped in mid-sentence. The guests noticed that she had become very pale, and one of the men in the group started to help her to her chair. But before he reached her, she took a deep breath and continued her interrupted story. After the tour was over and the visitors were gone, the guide hurried to her friend who was keeping the guest register. He's here again, she exclaimed. He brushed against me in the upstairs bedroom. I never felt anything quite like it. His touch was clammy and frightening. And just last week, she exclaimed, he was in the downstairs parlor. I'll never forget how that sudden rush of cold air felt. It seems he always comes when there are groups of tourists here. I can't decide whether he dislikes having strangers in his home or whether he wants to remind me to tell the people his remarkable success story and what a fine person he was. Whatever the reason, I know John Parkman's ghost is here in Sturdivant Hall. John McGee Parkman lived in the White Column Mansion now known as Sturdivant Hall for only three years, 1864 to 1866, but they were three of the happiest years of his life. At the age of 29, Parkman was president of the First National Bank of Selma, a new institution with a capital of $100,000. He had a charming wife and two beautiful little daughters, Emily Norris Parkman and Maria Hunter Parkman. 
he occupied a place of esteem in the social and business life of Selma, and his home was one of the most splendid in the entire Black Belt. Life was good. Then, with a suddenness that shocked the entire community, John Parkman's career ended in disgrace. The youthful bank president was the victim of the same era of judgment that ruined older and more experienced businessmen during the post-war period. He speculated in cotton. Soon, after he had invested large sums of the bank's money in cotton, the price of the fiber dropped from 30 and 35 cents to 15 and 18 cents per pound and Parkman's bank lacked the funds to cover the losses. Because federal money was deposited in the First National Bank, General Wager Swain, commanding officer of the United States troops in the Selma district, moved in quickly, closed the bank, and placed Parkman under arrest. Parkman was taken under guard to Cahaba and confined in Castle Morgan, the prison which had only a short time before been used by the Confederate government for the incarceration of Yankee prisoners. Up to this point, the facts about Parkman's life are clear, but there are confusing and conflicting reports regarding what happened after his imprisonment, particularly what happened following his escape from the stockade at Cahaba. According to one story, friends in Selma, men who believed that Parkman's poor judgment did not merit such severe punishment, arranged for his escape from Castle Morgan. They first bribed the warden of the prison to cooperate with them in carrying out the escape plan. Then they arranged for a steamer to be waiting at Cahaba Wharf, some 50 yards down the bluff from the prison, to pick Parkman up. The scheme called for a group of musicians dressed in gay costumes to march up and down in front of the stockade to divert the guards while Parkman climbed over the rear wall of the enclosure and then escaped by running down the bluff to the waiting boat. Every detail of the planned prison break seemed perfect. The costume musicians were putting on a splendid show at the prison entrance. The warden had left Parkman's cell unlocked, and the boat was waiting. But someone saw Parkman as he was climbing over the wall and gave the alarm. Several shots were fired. Some witnesses said Parkman was shot as he dived into the river. Others said he was so frightened by the shots that he dived under the boat and was killed by the big paddle wheel. Still others contended that he made good his escape. There was even disagreement about who fired at Parkman. One report was that his so-called friends shot him to make certain that Parkman would never divulge information which would have linked them with the bank scandal. These friends, one story relates, claimed his body in secret and, hidden by the thick shrubbery, buried it at night near a scuppernog arbor at the rear of Sturdivant Hall. Another, more romantic but less plausible story says that the young man's body was swept by the current down the Alabama River 
and that it finally lodged in the low limbs of a willow tree. It was the same tree, this story states, whose limbs had broken the window in the stateroom when Parkman was bringing his bride up the river from Mobile to Selma aboard a luxury river steamer. If there are questions concerning Parkman's death, there is a little question regarding return of his ghost to his beloved Sturdivant Hall. Students of the supernatural say the ghost came back to try to clear Parkman's name of the blemish cast on it by his handling of the bank's funds. And perhaps the theory is right. He did not return to Sturdivant Hall immediately after his death. In fact, it was not until after his home had been sold to Emil Gilman, about three years after the Castle Morgan episode, that Parkman's ghost first visited the premises. The property for which Parkman had paid $65,000 when he purchased it in February 1864 brought only $12,000 when it was sold to Gilman, and the transaction left Parkman's family destitute. Servants in the home, many of whom had been employed by Parkman, were the first to be aware that his spirit had returned. They refused to walk through the back lot near the carriage house after dark, and even during the daytime they avoided the shadowy area with its thick growth of fig trees and scuppernong vines. Mr. Parkman's there, they would answer when asked why they skirted around the back lot. He's come back. Three or four of them stoutly declared that they had seen Parkman walking about in the orchard. Others were equally firm in their assertions that they had seen him on the side portico, leaning against the iron grillwork railing. And still others told of having seen him quite distinctly gazing out from the cupola atop the house. All of the servants who talked of having seen Parkman affirmed their belief that he was buried near the Scuppernong Arbor and that his restless spirit roamed from that grave. Even when they were told that Parkman was properly interred in the family lot in Live Oak Cemetery, they kept insisting, Mr. Parkman is right here. He's buried under the fig tree by the arbor, and he's troubled and restless, mighty restless. It must indeed be the restless, troubled ghost of John Parkman that wanders through the spacious rooms and around the grounds of the home he loved, appearing only when crowds of people are present. Is he objecting to the intrusion of these strangers in his home? Is he trying to play again the role of gracious host to a gay gathering of guests? Or is he seeking a defender? Someone who will clear him of the stigma that has marred his good name. You have been listening to Holback Stage Live and our 13 Days of Halloween. This episode was read by Tony Wildfong. Tune in tomorrow for another Alabama ghost story.
This has been a production of the Holback Stage Inc. and Holback Stage Live on WBSL Radio. Please, please, please take the time to visit our website and check the show description for a link to all of our social media. Follow us for upcoming events and announcements about what you can look forward to on our production calendar. Contact this show at holbackstagelive at gmail.com for sponsorship opportunities. Imagine your name reaching all of our listeners through our episodes. I know, crazy, right? Thank you for listening. Keep coming back and stay kind.